Father God, thank you that you've gathered us this morning. And uh, in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became willingly our sacrifice, who paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, who now is sitting at your right hand, having been gloriously raised from the dead on the third day. Father, thank you for him and his willingness to leave heaven's glory for us sinners and for the sinners of this world. So, Father, we thank you for faith and its great eternal blessing, also for its blessing today that we can rest in the abundance of your grace, that your grace is always sufficient for us, whatever our trials, tribulations, might be that uh, your grace is always sufficient. You've made that promise to us, that you uh, are working all things together for our good, uh, that you are putting us in the very center of your will and purpose, that your work is very much focused on the body of Christ and bringing still in these dark and last days even more into the fold of fellowship. So, Father, we're so thankful for that. We pray for our nation that's gone so far astray. And uh, for those that dare to stand for truth and true justice, we do pray, Father, that you'd encourage them and give them success in every level of government. We certainly are praying for our president and those that serve with him. And may they be protected and may they be successful in accomplishing what is truly good for this nation and our people. And I pray, Father, that many would still be drawn in saving faith to you in these days. They seem very dark to us, but uh, of course, uh, <laughs> you're the one doing the great work, and you're doing that work, which has been foreordained. So we're so thankful for that and all that you do. Please continue to remind us of your presence. Father, thank you for our time now to share in your word and uh, Pray, Father, that you'd open your word to us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, we have the privilege today <coughs> of finishing our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is our last time together, specifically in Philippians. We've spent how long here? Maybe three months or more? Going through Philippians verse by verse, and uh, as I've said before a few times, but every time we go through Philippians, the Lord opens up the book. I mean, it's kind of like, it says that? I didn't see that before, right? Why, why did I never see this before? It's so obvious, so crystal clear. And uh, that's uh, one of the wonders of God's word with the Spirit able to teach us always what's written and what it means, what it means, and how it relates, how it applies to our lives. So here we are again today. Um, this is the third, just for you who haven't been here, but the third in, in a review of the letter. So we've been reviewing for two weeks now. This is the third, finishing that up. The focus in these three weeks has been on what I call the 12 dimensions of blessing revealed in the letter. There actually are 12 levels, well, dimensions, I call them, 
of, of blessing that believers have today. Twelve, that's a lot, right? All highlighted in Paul's letter to the Philippians, one after the other. And there's a, a marvelous structure there where things are introduced in chapter one that are then reflected again later, and especially chapter four. So there's a balance. There's a symmetry. It's an amazing structure. And we've been looking that, at that over the last two weeks by looking at the key words in each of those things. So that there are 12 key words that give us the structure. Now, that I never had seen before till this time through. So, you know, that's one of the great blessings I've enjoyed um, as we've uh, studied God's word here recently. But if there's anything to be highlighted as most important in the letter, it's this concept of the mind. In fact, you know, we were talking about the mind and how important the mind is uh, in the life of a believer, right? If we set our mind on things above, on things heavenly, on things spiritual, that's going to have a radically different consequence in our lives than if we set our minds on things that are evil or worldly. And Satan uses the world system to get into our hearts, and it comes in through the mind, <clears throat> most, most, uh, mostly, right? So mind or mind meaning pattern of thinking, uh, it's, this is not a word used of logical thinking. That's a different word in the Greek language. This word here means the pattern of thinking, the overall structure of it, the the, the methodology of it. The, the, so really, um, the translation in the King James that the word mind is a, is a good translation because it, they could have translated it a different way. Sometimes it's translated think in the King James, but usually not. <clears throat> and there are examples in Philippians given of what kind of thinking, what kind of mindset, mindset is a good word, what kind of mindset believers ought to have. The primary example given is that of Christ himself. <clears throat> That's in chapter 2, especially verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, once you read that, you're thinking, okay, what is it? What is he talking about? What's he referring to specifically? This mind should be in you, in you believers, right? You Philippians, and of course, by, by implication, all of us, right? Which was in Christ Jesus. So immediately we're thinking about, oh, Christ in his earthly ministry, where we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so forth, giving us all this information, right? Except that's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> he goes on in the verses there to talk about him being willing to leave heaven's glory. So if you correlate this with, with what's in the book of Hebrews and what's in, in the Old Testament book of Psalms, you'll see directly what Paul is referring to. He's talking about how Christ thought when he possessed everything at the right hand of God the Father in heaven's glory. But the plan was to carry out redemption. And that required him to take upon himself human form in the incarnation, right? To be born of a woman. Actually, this is usually ignored, but to be in the womb for nine months. You think about this one, right? Not manifesting any of his godliness, right? 
<clears throat> and being born like every other human is born, right? And then in infancy, and then finally maturing, and then finally entering into public ministry at about age 30, okay? So then rapidly things move ahead until to the cross, right? But the mindset that Paul is talking about here is the mind that he had in heaven's glory, willing to give up everything he had for the sake of sinners and to bear the full penalty of their, of their sins. So he was looking forward, thinking of this. He hadn't ever experienced that. Surely in the mind of God, he knew a lot about it. There were actually prophecies given that were very specific about what the trial of suffering would be. Right. But he hadn't experienced it yet. Just knowing the plan that had been worked out in eternity past. Right. And so he was in his mind willing to give up everything that he had clung to that was most important as a member of the Trinity to take upon himself now human form and to give up many manifestations. Now, he didn't give up his deity. Actually, there's false teachers that say he did, but this is clearly wrong. He didn't give up his deity. But he did give up outward manifestation of it for the most part. So there were just points in his earthly ministry where this would break forth. And quite a few points, but still, he was, many of them thought simply a man. <clears throat> the Jewish leaders thought a false teacher, right? Claiming to be something that he wasn't, in fact, in blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be Israel's Messiah. So that singleness of mind that was in Christ is held up as the supreme example there in chapter 2, verse 5. However, immediately Paul switches to a different subject. The subject then is his own mindset as he sought to be like Christ, to imitate him. Okay, so that's really what takes the larger place in the letter. It's not the most critical because without knowing about Christ's own mindset in heaven when he left heaven's glory and came to earth, Paul's, you know, example would be meaningless. Okay, so really what Paul is doing is saying, Christ has taught me and I've learned much, and now I'm revealing that to you, I'm demonstrating it. In other words, he says, I have a testimony. This is what I've given up. And we spent much time here as we went through Philippians looking at what Paul had given up. He had given up pretty much everything that was important to him, everything that had been uh, his accomplishments, um, his position in the nation of Israel and, and studying under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher, and then becoming a Pharisee and all of this, but then, you know, how it all ended. He's bringing the charge against Stephen, who's then uh, martyred, you know, right before his eyes. And just after that, Christ intersects with Paul's life on the road to Damascus and changes everything, right? So Paul was willing to give it up all. And so the mindset that Paul took on for himself was that which Christ had had in heaven's glory, giving up what he had there. So that's that's sort of, the, in a nutshell, the theme of the whole letter. Um, Paul, uh, in right at the end of chapter 1 of Philippians, uh, in verse 30, he's, he writes this as he introduces this uh, 
his example for the believers, his testimony, he says, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. The conflict was his zeal for sinners needing to know the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Okay. For him, it was a struggle. This word for conflict, I, I pointed out how that's the Greek word agon, from which we get our word agony. But what it refers to is an athletic event. Could be a race, could be a wrestling event. Um, athletic of, uh, athletics and, and that kind of athletics were very uh, big in um, the Greek dominated world. Of course, you know, you know about marathons and all that, right? Uh, and Paul often uses this analogy of running the race. In this letter, that's the main analogy he uses, running the race, right? So Paul says, I have this, this, this in my, myself, in my heart, I have a struggle for you, believers, and for unbelievers, that you might know what Christ has taught me. And he says, I'm demonstrating what you saw in me and now hear to be in me. They now hear it to be in him as he's in bondage in Rome, you see. So he's writing the letter from jail. Not, it's a house arrest, but uh, he's writing the letter from house arrest in Rome to the believers in Philippi. Okay, that sets the stage for the rest of the letter, right? And because the next verses immediately in chapter 2 um, are wonderful. The first three verses there, he mentions the mind again, <clears throat> okay, Philippians 2.1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, you know, what he's really saying is, you've seen this all in me. He's just said that in the previous verse, right? You've seen this in me and you know this is true. Even in under house arrest, I'm exhibiting the grace of Christ and it's having effect in Rome even at the highest places, right? Even in Caesar's household, he says. Whoa. <laughs> um, people are getting saved in Caesar's household. Could be centurions. And it turns out there were even members of Caesar's own family getting saved. Okay, so he says then in verse 2, chapter 2, Fulfill ye my joy. His joy would be that they would experience what he did and was, and live it out fully. It says, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded. There's the word for mind again, the same word that becomes the theme of the whole letter. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So to have co-mindedness and in love together, one accord, one mind. This is what keeps getting repeated, right? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. There it is again, yeah. Let each esteem, esteem is a word for mindset, esteem each other better than themselves. So when something's repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. Holy Spirit is choosing the words, okay, that are written on the page. Okay, so you can see, if you just take note of it, right? I mean, how many times did I read this and not see this? But if you just take note of it, over and over and over again, the emphasis is on the mind set being right. Being like Christ was when he was willing to give up everything to leave heaven's glory for the sake of the redemptive plan. And 
and its accomplishment. Okay, so um, this mind focus, mindset focus, is extremely critical to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And without seeing this, we really do miss the larger part of the teaching. That's the bottom line. So now our outline for today, that's just a review. Okay, our outline for today is in three questions. These are the, the critical questions, and I think it gets to really the heart of uh, the Apostle Paul and also to the heart of his trials and tribulations and, and the persecutions that had come upon him because he often refers to false teachers who are just trying to destroy the ministry that he's had in the churches. He's gone from city to city founding assemblies in the different cities, and immediately when he leaves town, the false teachers come in. The Judaizers are following him around from Jerusalem and then Antioch and then out into the Gentile world. <clears throat> what are they teaching? What are these Judaizers teaching? They're teaching that Paul is a charlatan. He's a false teacher. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And in fact, the Gentiles have to submit to the Jewish law to be saved. That's what, what's being taught. And it's having an effect because the believers who have been taught by Paul, in some cases, are giving up their faith, at least the part of it that has to do with God's grace and the way God is working today under grace. So it was a very serious problem for Paul throughout his entire life. <clears throat> so for the three questions that make up our outline today, first of all, and before I give these to you, I guess I should say one other thing. I'm going to say things today that might seem shocking to some, because we often hear things that are actually contrary to Paul's letters being taught. It's very common, and it seems kind of like it's increasingly common, because so many in, in the, uh, the evangelical part of the church have sort of turned away from their earlier love, and they've gone... First of all, they turned away from the scripture and their reliance. They've been turned away from the, the doctrine of inspiration. They've turned away from creation, as it's taught in the Bible. They've turned away from uh, from morality, as it's taught in the Bible. They're more uh, accepting of, of sins, which are so gross, Paul says, no one should even talk about them. No, that's what he says. It's that, that bad, right? And yet we are talking about them because the culture has been taken over, but Think of Corinth. Corinth was the center of, uh, of sexual sin and idolatry, and yet the believers there were instructed how to live in the power of God's grace and to be delivered from the worldliness that they had been a part of, totally, totally separate from it, right? Okay, so uh, really when I make the point I want to make today, which, remember, this is the last session on Philippians. So today, what is really the 12th, the 12th dimension of blessedness for the believer today under grace, you might be a little shocked the way I'm going to say it. I'm saying it this way on purpose, okay? So first of all, the first question to highlight this is, what is the privilege behind Paul's example. We see on all these 
uh, in all these letters, and you'll see more in a moment because I'm going to give you an overview of what he says in other places. But what we see is Paul's example highlighted, but that seems strange to us. People, you're always taught, you're not supposed to highlight yourself. right? You're only supposed to sacrifice yourself for others. Don't ever set yourself up as an example for others. That's what we're taught. That's totally different than what you find Paul writing about here. He constantly set himself up as an example. But why and how? How does it make sense for Paul to do that? So what is the privilege behind Paul's example? He had a privilege. We'll see what that was. Secondly, what is the preeminence of Paul's example? Many believers were living and had a testimony for Christ, right? They didn't all write letters and they didn't all they were not all apostles, right? And they were not all used by God in the same way. Paul was used in a special way. And in all these letters, which make up most of the New Testament, there would be no Christian church without Paul. Okay? Uh, without these letters that highlight Paul's example, we wouldn't be talking that much about it. In fact, today in the churches it's not talked about much. Paul's example has been greatly minimized in the churches in the last 30, 40 years, sadly, and to great uh, consequence. Okay, so the second question is, what is the preeminence of Paul's example? You know, how is it that Paul can set himself forth this way as our example? The third question that we want to look at is, what is the power behind Paul's example? Okay, well, preachers always like alliteration. So what is the privilege behind his example? What is the preeminence of his example? And thirdly, what is the power behind Paul's example? And that is uh, enough to fill much more than our time today. Only we would uh, look at it very carefully. Our title today for everything is the, and here I use a word that, would uh, offend some, so, so be it. The Imitation of Paul. There's a famous book in church history called The Imitation of Christ. Okay, it, It's uh, uh, very old and very famous and full of false teaching, actually. Roman Catholic book. Uh, the Imitation. We're going to talk about The Imitation of Paul. And our high calling in Christ Jesus, which he reveals and demonstrates. Okay, so there are the three components we want to look at of this. Okay, first of all, what is the privilege behind Paul's example? Okay, here we have to get to the heart of the suffering and the persecution that Paul went through. At the very beginning, right after Paul is struck blind on the road to Damascus, he ends up under the care of a man named Ananias. And um, there's a vision that Ananias receives about Paul. He says, here's this man now, and I've taken him for myself, <laughs> and we're going to use him gloriously. However, it's maybe not going to be a way that you would ever have asked for or, or wanted, right? And I want you to tell Paul because he's still blinded at this point. But I want you to tell Paul how much he's going to have to suffer for my sake. And that is going to give Paul the privilege. Okay, 
of being our example. So it's a very key thing in the letter. How much Paul would have to suffer. And this is in chapter 9 of Acts. I'll read verses 15 and 16. Okay, so this is uh, about Ananias. The Lord said unto him, Go thy way. So the Lord's speaking directly to Ananias in this vision, right? Go thy way. For he, meaning Saul, hadn't been, been called Paul yet. Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, Caesar, Herod, and the children of Israel. Okay, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. So Paul's life is going to be characterized by trial, persecution, even stoning three times, whippings, things we can't even conceive of. He'll be left for dead, but the Lord will revive him, right? So that is going to characterize Paul's life. And Paul is taught, see, he, he prays to be delivered from these things, but he's going to be taught that it's his privilege to suffer for Christ in this way. And I think that when we read Philippians, we must take this to heart because actually what do we have to expect of the Lord, right? If, if we think we are going to be delivered from all these trials, we're surely wrong, right? Because God uses these things in the life of a believer. It's been said that the blood uh, of the... Uh, um, of Christians is, you know, is, is the um, seat of the church, right? In church history, that's been true. Yeah. Most believers, probably most, we don't have any numbers, probably most believers have died as martyrs over the centuries. It's only rather recently that this is not the case, and only in some places. They still die as martyrs all over the world. Yeah. In this country, we've been delivered from that for some considerable hundreds of years, right? And in certain other places like England or Germany, but even in England and those places, there's been much martyrdom too, right? Even remember the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer, I mean, he, he uh, renounced the Pope and he renounced uh, some of the sacraments and so forth and so on. And, and he ended up being burned at the stake, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So suffering is the lot of believers. In fact, um, I'll, I'll read here from uh, Philippians chapter 1 right near the end, because that is our study. It's in Philippians. Philippians 1, 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in Abimei. So what Paul is saying there, he's trans, he's uh, transitioning the message from himself to all of us. So he's saying, well, for me, I was promised trial and tribulation on behalf of Christ. It means for his benefit, right, to honor him. And it's not only me. He says, it's you too. That's exactly what it says there in chapter 1, verse 29. And we know he also writes in another place, all those that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, right? 
So Philippians highlights these things. It's critical to his message here in the letter he writes to the Philippians. But the whole message comes to a crescendo in chapter 3. And uh, uh, chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read from there in a moment, uh, but before we do, uh, in verse 10, which in a certain way is the, hmm, I call it the penultimate, one back from the, the ultimate verse in the whole chapter is probably chapter 2, verse 5, right? About let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. But in verse 10, Paul speaks about what the desire of his own heart is, right? What is the desire of Paul's heart? He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, in our studies here, we spent a bit of time on that because this is, I think, the verse where Paul communicates the essence of his entire life and ministry, right? That he might know Christ even better, right, over time. But how can he do that? I mean, you know, I mean, how can you know Christ better? He says how. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that means sharing in them, even now, today, being made conformable unto his death. Um, this may seem to be way beyond you. You may read these words and think, that's not me. That could be Paul. He's a great a saint even. Well, we're all saints. Right? <clears throat> but the fact is, and it's critical to understanding Paul's intentions in writing the letter, the fact is he's writing this of himself as an example for us. So that means we also are being drawn into this. And if you just stop to think about this for a second, and I think many believers never have, but I still remember the first time I ever thought of it, which was 1973, okay, or something like that, uh, <clears throat> reading these verses and thinking about what does this really mean. When You know how Christ said to Paul, um, why are you persecuting me? Yeah. And Paul said, persecuting you? I'm killing these people who claim to be followers of you. You cannot persecute believers without persecuting the Lord. The, the persecution, the suffering that believers go through is something Christ, in some way that we can't even conceive of, also feels. That's the point of it. Okay, so... If Christ is suffering today because he's connected to the body, he's the head of the body and we are the members, so when we suffer, he suffers. When we rejoice, he rejoices, right? So if that's true, then we know what Paul's talking about here, okay? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship or the sharing in his sufferings being made conformable unto his, unto his death. So there, now we reach the height of it. How can it be? that Paul or anybody else could ever, as he says here, be made conformable unto Christ's death. And I'm not going to answer the question for you, but that's what we're learning. And that's what Paul was learning throughout his entire life. And that's what he's writing about in these letters, that learning experience. 
So because of the learning experience and because he'd given himself over to this, he had the testimony that he could share everywhere, right? So to summarize, <coughs> sorry, there are four verses there that uh, I would like you to read, Carrie. Four verses there, Philippians chapter 3, that summarize uh, Paul's whole message there. It's 3 and uh, 11 through 14. Carrie? If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but but one thing I one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, thank you, Carrie. Okay, so what Paul says here, using the race analogy, right? He says, I'm on this path. I didn't choose this path. The Lord put me here. This is his path I'm on, right? And this is his race I'm running. And I used uh, two weeks ago the illustration of, uh, uh, you know, from Chariots of Fire, the movie, which everyone knows or should know because it's such a great movie, Chariots of Fire. So Liddell, you know, was running a race, but he, from his point of view, it was the race of the Lord. And after the race was run, and after he won the gold medal, went back to China, where he had been raised by missionary families, ultimately died in a Japanese prison camp there after serving his entire life there on the mission field. And the first gold medal ever won by a, a Chinese person in the Olympics was won by Eric Liddell because he was considered Chinese. Isn't that interesting? Um, so the race... The race that Paul's running is the Lord's race, and he needs to run it according to the the rules of the race, right? Nobody wins a prize unless they conform to the regulations. If you break the rules, you're disqualified. So what Paul is writing about now is running this race, which can result, he says, in a prize, but it's not guaranteed. Not every believer is going to get this prize. So there will be a distinction made, and that will be at the judgment seat of Christ. So there will be rewards given. Uh, Paul writes in another place, everyone's going to get rewards, right? Uh, rewards will vary based upon the person and, and whether they ran the race well, or maybe they didn't run the race much at all, right? Maybe they were distracted by worldly matters, but they were still saved. So be it. They'll be in heaven's glory in fellowship with the Lord, but there'll be distinction. Now, uh, that's really at the heart of this letter, and everything it stands for is is, is uh, encapsulated in that thought, I think. There's even what he says in, in verse um, 11, a special resurrection. He calls it the resurrection of the dead, but I, it's too much to go into now, but it's, it's not a separate physical resurrection. It's spiritual, and it looks forward to the judgment seat of Christ and 
being uh, distinguished there from those that were saved but lived as if they were unbelievers. So remember, he writes of a woman who's living in sin. He says she's dead while she lives, right? So to be living the life fully is what God wants of all of us. That means to walk the walk and run the race uh, as intended. So that's the point, first point. Now, quickly on to the second point. What is the preeminence of Paul's example? The preeminence of Paul's example. And here, uh, Paul uses the word type. And uh, we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, Linda, I'd like you to read uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2. Be ye followers of me, even as I am, I also am of Christ. Now I praise thee, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I have delivered them to you. Thank you, Linda. Okay, so children need, desperately need parents who can be role models. If they don't have that, and this is very true of children that never knew their parents. Or maybe they just didn't know one. Maybe they didn't know their father, right? Then they lack that example. I have a friend who never knew his father, but another man um, stepped in to be his mentor and role model. And throughout all the young years, he, he was just that, and it changed his life, right? We all, as we're growing up, need role models. We need examples. We need mentors. We need, and, and we need a mother and a father to provide these different things to us. And so when Paul says here, be followers of me, the word translated followers is actually the word for imitate. Okay? The Greek word has M, the, in English M-I-M -M in it. That's the root of it. We get mimic from that. Um, imitate also is derived from that Latin, okay? So to be a follower is to be an imitator, okay? Uh, this may hit you the wrong way. How can you be an imitator of a man? How can Paul say it? How dare he say, imitate me? Why doesn't he say instead, be more like Jesus every day, because that's what everybody's saying all the time. We need to be more like Jesus, but they're not telling you how to do it. Paul is saying, I've been instructed by Christ. I'm imitating him. So you can imitate me. And that's what it says explicitly, 1 Corinthians 11. We are called upon, exhorted here, to be imitators of Paul, okay? As he imitates Christ. Now, they didn't even have the Gospels then, so that, that was not something anybody could read. They did have Paul. Right. He was their example, and they had his letters. Okay. Now we get to these key verses, and I, I want uh, um, Patty to read them. <laughs> Chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. And here Paul makes the strongest statement that you can find anywhere in his letters about how imitating him is so critical. So, Patty, will you read that, please? Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies, 
of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Okay, again, there were those that refused Paul's message and ministry. And they were not imitating Paul. In fact, they were fighting against him. Meaning they're fighting against the grace of God, because that's what he's presenting. So he says, imitate me and take note of those who are not, right? Right? Because they're walking on a different path. In fact, they're the, he says, I tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. The word for destruction means unraveling. It means uh, (laughs) you put ice cream in a dish and put it in the sun. What happens? Right? Uh, That's what the word means. It means total unraveling. It doesn't mean, I mean, they may have even been believers who turned astray, but it doesn't mean you're lost, you're going to hell necessarily. Maybe you are, but that's not the point of it. The point is that your your life not having the power of grace is unraveling. So he says, imitate me. Okay? And then, Roy, Roy, would you please read this verse out of uh, chapter 4, because it's so remarkable. Chapter 4, verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. Thank you, Roy. <laughs> Again, those things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, in chapter 3, verse 17, notice he is translated in sample or example in most translations there. He says, you have us for your example. That is the word type in Greek. Paul is actually a type of Christ. That's incredible for us to realize. He's a type of Christ. We think of Old Testament types in the sacrificial system given through Moses. Paul is actually a type, that's the exact word used in the Greek, for us to imitate. So, hmm, wow, what a teaching, huh? Well, there are actually Six more places in Paul's letters where he writes about this, about how he's their example and they need to imitate him. Six places. 1 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, 2 Thessalonians 3 and 9. All those places say the same. It's impossible to ignore it unless you try really hard, (laughs) okay, that Paul is to be our example. Now, um, I'll leave it for your study later, but in 2 Timothy 3, Paul, in verses 10 to 14, write that down, 2 Timothy 3, chapter 10 to 14. If I had time, I'd read it now. But there, Paul says, it's my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity or love, my patience. And through all the persecutions and everything else that I've been set forth is your example. And therefore, everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus, meaning according to this pattern, will suffer persecution. And then he says, continue in this 
that I've taught you knowing of whom you've learned them. Okay, Paul's example was so powerful. Now the final point, and if we, I wish we had more time, but it's about the power. Okay, so, uh, and in, in a certain way, this is maybe the most important. We need to understand that through the words come the, the power. God uses the word to transfer the power to us. Isn't it written? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? Without that, the power doesn't get transmitted to the heart of a sinner. The blindness isn't removed. The gospel is the tool. It's the vehicle God uses. So these words that we've been looking at here are the tool that God uses to bring power into our lives as believers. So, Mitch, would you read those final verses we want to look at today in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. <laughs> Paul's concerned about his testimony at the judgment seat, that all these have come to know Christ. Not only that, they've lived the life, they've run the race, right? And they received a, a special blessing, crown, reward at that time. It's his great concern throughout his life. Well, it can't happen without power in life, right? So the question is, do we have that power? Well, the answer is yes. Have we used that power, received it gladly? The answer might not be yes. It's not true for every believer that we have received it. Or tomorrow, there may be a great challenge and you may turn aside, right? So we pray to God that we will not, that we'll stay on the path, run the race. Well, and for some, he says in Second Timothy, the last letter he wrote, that, that love is appearing. They will receive what special blessing then? A crown of righteousness. That's a very special gift indeed for those that love is appearing. Other believers may be on the wrong path and not loving is appearing at all. They won't receive that, that special blessing, but some will. And uh, notice when we started, Paul wrote of this as tentative. He didn't know, he didn't even know for sure whether he would attain unto the prize, what he called the prize of his high calling. He was sure hoping for it. So... We should be hoping for it, too. Amen? Praise the Lord. So let's run the race well with the Scripture empowering us and Paul's example standing before us. And it will be the mind of Christ because there's no other way to do it. Right? Amen? Father God, thank you for gathering us today and what a blessing it is to open your word together and to see what uh, the main points are in Paul's letter to the Philippians and 
I pray, Father, that they would be truly meaningful for us, that we wouldn't just read the words as words on a page that was written 2,000 years ago nearly and not that important. Now, Father, very important indeed for us as believers today. And may we pattern our lives and our thinking the way Paul himself was enabled to do, knowing that you're enabling us as well. And uh, please fortify our hope uh, that we may also receive that reward someday. So, Father, what a blessing it is to know the abundance of your grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen and amen. amen.